Hey everybody, your buddy Basil here, and over there is Gons. Gons, you'll hear our names again. Yeah. Uh, anyways, here is the pre-intro to the second installment to the Canary Cry pre-Easter weekend three-peat. Easter? Are you celebrating Ishtar? Is this what's happening? Resurrection Day. <laughs> or whatever. Even if it's not the actual day, it's the cultural equivalent. It's the pagan. The, the pagan one. The pagan the one, Basil. Resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> I'm celebrating Jesus anyways. Hey, Gonzo. Me too. me too. Yeah. Yeah. So here it is. Here's number two. We promised it would happen, and here we are. So there you go. And just one... One more quiet, polite reminder, if you guys are interested in the Canary Cry Radio USB Archive Project, it's a metal waterproof USB that will survive the apocalypse. So all the just invaluable information in Canary Cry Radio can survive on until the end of days. And uh, yeah, so if you want that, you can go to canarycryradio.com. And if you sign up for... A $15 a month or more uh, support gift donation uh, pledge to Canary Cry Radio. We will just send you that because we like you and we're so thankful for your support. Uh, just so everybody knows, there is less than 30 of those available. So uh, as of the time of this recording. So go and do that if, if you love us. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't if you don't by the way just no. to let you guys yeah. know you, you know, know don't feel bad like, if you're like i can't it's like it's all right you don't have to it's you know or whatever or if the holy spirit's convicting you i mean whatever you gotta listen to him <laughs> Jeez, ruthless marketer <laughs> if you just send in your seed money the lord will bless you Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've been practicing that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so there you go, everybody. And uh, on top of that, make sure to check out The Joy Spiracy Theory on your iTunes or Face Like the Sun on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's you ready it. to go, Gons? Yeah. Uh, make sure to k put your thinking caps on because this one's a doozy. It's a Duesenheimer. Duesenheimer. Duesenberg? Duesenberg. That's what it is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Don't say bye. We're just saying hi. Yeah, it's like bye till next time. Adieu. Adieu. Adieu into the end of the episode. Okay. All right. Even though they're about to hear us talk. Adieu. I wrote a little speech and gave a speech right before I left Congress. And I said, I don't think the members of Congress uh, really know how little effect they have in controlling things. Really, there's, uh, the, and that means that the Congress itself doesn't have much control. The people doesn't have much. To, they don't have much to say about it either. The control of overall policy is really in the hands of a very small number of people who control all the administrations, all the appointments to cabinets, and certainly all the appointments to the Federal Reserve. So the American people have been conditioned that it's great to have two parties. We don't want to be. Like like Italy, where there's all these choices, we want to limit our choices. It's easier that way. 
Can you specify this structure that you're talking about, this power structure? Well, the power structure basically is made up of a lot of very powerful business and uh, corporate leaders uh, in the country. And uh, it's, uh, in particular, they have formed their organizations. They've been around for a good while, and uh, they don't even hide it anymore. You know, the Trilateral Commission, as well as the Council of Foreign Relations. No matter what, uh, which president, which party is in power, uh, they will appoint to the major offices uh, members of these two committees. After I got my degree at Harvard, I taught at Harvard. I taught at Harvard from 1960, then in 1960 I went to Columbia University and have been a professor there since then, but periodically I've been involved in public affairs. So for example, in the mid-60s, I was on the Policy Planning Council of the Department of State. In 1960, I was marginally involved in the Kennedy campaign for president of Foreign Policy Brain Trust. In 1968, I directed the Foreign Policy Task Forces for Vice President Humphrey, who was running for the presidency. In 1972, I became director of the Trilateral Commission. Listening to Canary Cry Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 104. 104, number two in the three, Pete. That's right. Our guest today is Patrick Wood. He studied economics at the University of Arizona. He was the founder of the August Corporation back in 1975, where he initially offered portfolio management services to investors in the U.S. And in 1978, he commenced the publication of the Trilateral Observer to keep track and document the activities of the Trilateral Commission with co-editor the late Anthony Sutton, a name that's pretty familiar to many conspiracy theorists. Uh, The pair went on to publish the bestseller Trilaterals Over Washington, Part 1 and Part 2, which became a staple in this type of research, uh, even being used in some political science classrooms. In 1981, he founded the World Research Library, where I think our friend Carl Teichrib is a senior fellow. Uh, he's continued his research with the August Review and the August Forecast, which, if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, is now under the operating name technocracy.news. Uh, we'd like to welcome a long overdue guest, Patrick Wood. Patrick, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Absolutely. You have got quite the uh, the bio there. I was just getting excited just uh, hearing Gons read it. But before we get into, you know, I'm really curious about the Trilateral Commission and, and uh, every, all your work with that. But before we get into that, tell me a little bit about your history. Like, when did you become a Christian? What got you into the research? What was your upbringing? How in the world did you end up as the Patrick Wood? Yeah, I'll tell you what, I, I can't take much credit for it, honestly, and this this is not a life nor a position that I probably would have chosen for myself, but um, <laughs> if you know what I mean, I, yeah. some people wouldn't know, but honestly, I didn't set out to um, to be some kind of a journalist or, you know, an exposer of uh, the global elite and stuff, but um, I actually became a Christian in the mid-1970s, and um, through the... 
through the encouragement of a friend and a witness of a friend of mine from Colorado, actually, I was in Arizona at the time, um, he shared a book with me, The Late Great Planet Earth. And uh, I was an atheist up to that point. Um, wow. I actually had become an agnostic. I, I got a little softer in my atheism. And um, anyway, he befriended me uh, in the place where I worked, and he gave me a copy of um, The Late Great Planet Earth. And I was kind of interested in current events and what was going on in the world. I read the book, and it challenged me a lot. But that planted the major seed in my mind that uh, there was more to reality than what I was willing to admit. Sure, and, uh, yeah. So it wasn't long after that that, uh, that I finally came to the point where I could completely submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I did. And uh, that, uh, that did change my life for sure, certainly changed my outlook. Um, and uh, about uh, not too long after that uh, was when I ran into Anthony Sutton down in, in New Orleans at a, a gold conference, actually. We both attended. Didn't know each other, but at the breakfast um, area in this hotel, it's a nice hotel, actually, but it wasn't very big. It was kind of a boutique hotel, and they had this conference. They weren't expecting to have six 600 people come to this conference, this gold conference, but it was really a hot thing back then. And so they said, well, you know, if you want to eat breakfast, you're just going to have to sit where we put you. They call it European seating. <laughs> you just sit where they tell you to sit. Right. And I said, oh, geez, I guess I'm, I'm hungry and I got to get to my first session. And so I sat down and he happened to be Tony Sutton sitting across the table from me. Wow. So we uh, we introduced each other and, you know, ourselves and started talking a little bit. And by the time our conversation was done, we, we both realized we were sitting on top of a huge story with a trilateral commission. And we shook hands um, and made a commitment to write a newsletter, which ended up being the Trilateral Observer. And out of that eventually came both of our books, Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2. And uh, that kind of became the de facto standard for anybody who wanted to know something, you know, about the Trilateral Commission. That's where you pretty much you had to turn. And I should probably stress, too, that, that in our eyes, there was no conspiracy on our part. Hmm. Uh, you'd have to know Tony Sutton to understand that. He was a research fellow at Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And he had been forced out. Because as he got closer to the Trilateral Commission uh, in his research, the president of Stanford at the time was David Packard, who was uh, the Packard of Hewlett Packard. And he was also a member of the Trilateral Commission. Mm. And he knew that Tony was on the he was on the hunt, so to speak. And so they let him go. They forced him out. And it ruined his career because when you're an academic of that sort, you know, where you're writing books all the time and stuff, you have to have a publisher and you have to have an audience, you know, for people that really want to buy your book. Right. Well, they killed him when they, you know, literally almost, well, figuratively, they killed him when, when they let him go. His career was over. And that's when I met Tony down in New Orleans. So, you know, here I am, a young guy, just, I'm in the finance world back then and, and, um, you know, I run into this guy who was a, a seasoned and almost tenured professor of economics <laughs> who has written more books by that time than I'd ever write in my lifetime. And uh, 
that's where we started. And Tony was a kind of guy. He never wrote anything that he cannot prove definitively. Sure. And uh, I, I appreciated that for him. They, they affectionately called him at, at the Hoover Institution, his, his colleagues. They call him the Hoover vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> That's a play on words, right? Yeah. And that was because once Sutton got on the hunt for information, he would go to any links to document it, you know, and to dig it out. And uh, he was famous uh, amongst his colleagues for original for original research, uh, going back to source documents and stuff, sorting things out that you and I would die of boredom, you know, look, looking at stuff like. But he liked he loved that stuff. He just loved it when he got a good project going. Uh, look out, you know, just stay out of his way. <laughs> so that's where we started. But we, you know, everything that we wrote about the Trilateral Commission was taken directly from their own literature. So we you weren't doing any spinning of webs or anything. No, you were just taking it straight from the horse's mouth. And, and I have to say, the reason, you know, all the stuff was in plain, it was plainly available to anybody who would, who would go to get it. The problem is, a guy on the street wouldn't know where to go to get it, you know, right. because it wasn't like you go down to 7-Eleven and it's, oh, yeah, there's, a, there's something on the Trilateral Commission. It wasn't that way. but. Right. But Sutton was such a skilled researcher, he knew how to dig stuff out. And he still had access to many, you know, um, fancy, uh, say fancy research places where, uh, you know, where you go and get journals that are written by, you know, top people in their field or whatever. You have to pay for those services for the most part. But sometimes you get them from the library, too. And he knew how to work the university library. And so he could get stuff that was in public domain, but he just knew where to, he knew how to find it and where to go get it. Right. And so that's all we ever did. We just reported exactly what they said they were going to do. Nothing more, nothing less. We didn't make up any stories about them. There was no folklore. There was no, um, you know, no tinfoil hat stuff at all. And that's why our books, Trilaterals Over Washington, actually were used as a textbook in uh, several political science uh, classes around the country. Wow. That kind of surprised me at the time, but, you know, they, it was. So, and then well, we eventually got blacklisted, and that was pretty much the end of our publishing career. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that might pull a lot of attention. Just even looking into it uh, got uh, uh, Tony, as you affectionately call him um fired from his thing so now for those of us who have not read your books can you give us kind of a trilateral commission 101 situation because i mean the trilateral trilateral commission is something that you know you see in articles and you kind of hear about and you you know for those who uh research agenda 21 and and all sorts of that kind of stuff i mean the trilateral commission comes up pretty often i think um but for those who might not have like a full grasp of exactly what it is why don't you why don't you lay it down for us yeah that's that's 99 and 9 tenths percent of all the people in the country uh have no idea right what it's all about barry goldwater senator barry goldwater wrote a book in 1979 uh called with no apologies and uh, he was a guy, some people remember, ran for president back in those days, and he got, uh, he was not successful. He was demonized for being a, 
some kind of a war hawk or something, which he wasn't. But um, nevertheless, he wrote a book. And in his book, he said, on uh, regarding this Trilateral Commission, he said, this is a direct quote from his book, he said, the Trilateral Commission is international and is intended to be the vehicle for multinational consolidation of the commercial and banking interests by seizing control of the political government of the United States. The Trilateral Commission represents a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical. Close quote. Mm. That's what he said. Famous quote. We concurred uh, completely. And the Trilateral Commission was formed in 1973, just a historical note now, by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Rockefeller, of course, was the chairman of uh, Chase Manhattan Bank at the time, very wealthy individual. The the money goes back into oil as well. Uh, Brzezinski was an academic that came out of Columbia University. And he was kind of the beauty and the beast kind of a a combination um, in a way. But what drew Brzezinski to Rockefeller was the book he published in, in 1970 called Between Two Ages. And the subtitle of the book was um, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. Ooh. I didn't know what that meant back then. Uh, we, we analyzed that book quite a bit, didn't, under, didn't quite understand it. But when the Trilateral Commission was formed in 1973, their tagline, their marketing line, branding line, whatever you want to call it, was that they intended to foster a new international economic order. That's what they said. It was all over their literature back then. They wanted to create a new international economic order. Now, we didn't know what the word new meant. At the time, we thought, well, it's going to be a rehash of Keynesian economics or something. You know, they're going to gain the system for themselves somehow. I've later come to understand that what they intended to do was to create a system based on technocracy, which was actually invented back in the 1930s, but it was picked up by Brzezinski in his book, between two ages, America's role in the technotronic era. The word technotronic, as it turns out, really was a knockoff for the word um, technocratic. So Brzezinski and Rockefeller picked members from three geographic regions, North America, Japan, and Europe. That's where the word trilateral comes from. Just tri means three. And they initially picked 289 members. They had, uh, the year before, it actually floated the idea at a Bilderberg meeting in Europe. They got a lot of encouragement from it, and they said, we'll be right behind you guys. Go do that. And so they did. And uh, it was not a political organization at all. Uh, there were Republicans and Democrats from North, or at least from America. It didn't seem to matter at all whether they were Republican or Democrat. They had bankers, industrialists, academics, politicians, media, uh, law firms, NGOs, quite a diverse group of people for sure, all movers and shakers. And like Barry Goldwater said, by the by the time 1979 rolled around, um, they had already taken over the administration of the United States thanks to the election of Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale, both of whom were members of the Trilateral Commission. This is what alarmed Tony and me, by the way, initially. Uh, Both Carter and Mondale were members, and Carter was a good old boy, peanut farmer from Georgia, 
who supposedly didn't know anybody in the Beltway, he, he opined that, oh, who am I going to, I don't know who I'm going to appoint. I just don't know very many people. And so people bought the, aw, shucks, you know, I'm just a poor farmer boy, I don't know nothing. They bought that, but you know what? By the time he had been seated in office, he'd already picked his cabinet, and all but one was a member of the Trilateral Commission. <laughs> it's incredible. And within the first month, he had appointed no less than a third of the U.S. membership to his cabinet and to top positions in the State Department and other agencies. It was a takeover. It's a clean sweep. And he appointed Zbigniew Brzezinski to be his national security advisor. Um, so that's kind of where the door opened for the Trilateral Commission to get their, their roots into the administration. But we were careful to point out back then, and I'd point it out now again, that it was not, it was not a political coup. They didn't care about the political mechanism of the United States or any other country for that matter. Hmm. The reason they wanted the United States was because it was the leading economic force in the world. And you just might imagine that, you know, a war, a globalist trader, a globalist businessman could do no better in the international market, in the global market than to capture the trade mechanism that is represented by the United States. It was the largest economy in the world. It dictated policy to every other country in the world. It, it was home to the United Nations in New York City. Um, it had the World Bank under its control as well. And so, you know, people said, oh, come on, that, you know, just a bunch of guys that, you know, they just happen to be bright. They happen to belong to some of the same groups, but it's no big deal. But now, historically, looking back, I can prove what I just said merely by pointing out that since 1976, there have been 12 U.S. trade representatives appointed by the president. That's the guy that negotiates the trade agreements, right? That has sunk us, like NAFTA and CAFTA, the um, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, hmm. is coming up. There's another one called TTIP coming up. The U.S. trade representative has been appointed 12 times since Jimmy Carter started, Nine of those 12 have been members of the Trilateral Commission. That's kind of beyond coincidence, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah. Nine out of 12 have been members of the Trilateral Commission, including the current one, Michael Froman, who is actually the lead negotiator for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The World Bank presidents, which traditionally are appointed by our president, there have been only eight of those since Jimmy Carter. And out of those eight, six have been members of the Trilateral Commission. Hmm. So you see, you kind of get an idea of the pattern here. Right. That, okay, right, it wasn't really about politics at all. It was about economics. They wanted control of the economic mechanism so that they could, in, in a sense, so they could open up the oyster of the whole world for themselves. They've done a very skillful job, I think, at that. I, I'm, I don't agree with it, but it's been a very skill, skillful job. Right. Here's another interesting statistic, too. Uh, the national security advisor to the president is the gatekeeper for the president on any kind of intelligence that comes. Uh, if you've got a bad NSA, you're in trouble because, you know, you're going to get a, a skewed view of what the world is really like. 
But the NSA has been a very influential position. When Brzezinski was the first one to Jimmy Carter, uh, some of the other names you'd recognize, uh, Henry Kissinger was an NSA um, to Gerald Ford in 1974, and some others, uh, Brzezinski, Brent Scowcroft, Frank Carlucci, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Susan Rice now, the current NSA, is a member of the Trilateral Commission. There have been 17 NSAs since Jimmy Carter. Ten of those have been members of the Trilateral Commission, including the last three. So Obama has been surrounded by these people. He's never, they've never let him uh, out of their sight, so to speak. And, um, you know, the list goes on. I could, there's other stuff that, you know, that I could point out, but it wasn't an economic coup. That's not what they were after. They were after this new international economic order. They just said that over and over. And when you look at what they actually did in the U.S. government, you can see this is really, this was their pearl. This was their prize. This was their end game. And, uh, I hate to say, while people have been fighting in the political system, you know, well, let's, let's elect this guy or let's, you know, oh, no, not that guy. You know, he's he's too much, you know, too progressive or too socialist, whatever. People have been arguing over politics ever since Jimmy Carter. It's a shame that they never saw this economic coup taking place. They never saw it. Honestly, it's just, it's astounding to me how people have been so ignorant about what's right under their nose, but they never saw it. So what have they been doing? What's a, I mean, why should people be upset about this? What sort of negative effects uh, from this sort of economic coup um, can people point at and be like, that's why we should not, you know, be okay with this? I'll I'll give you a great example. Who doesn't, who doesn't understand that China has stripped entire industries out of the United States in the last 10 years? Everybody knows that. Our manufacturing capacity in America has been decimated, uh, whether it's China or Mexico or India. Um, we've lost manufacturing jobs. Millions of jobs have been lost because those companies moved overseas. Or the jobs moved overseas. Let me tell you what happened in China. I'll bring you forward just on how how China worked out. When Richard Nixon was president, his number one guy was Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger made a secret trip to communist China. Didn't tell anybody. Only the president knew, apparently. He went to China, which was a communist dictatorship and and an enemy of the United States. An illegal trip, because it was illegal for anybody to go there. So he went there, and he opened up relations with China for trade. When By the time Jimmy Carter came in, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski picked up the ball as the NSA at that point. He continued to negotiate with the Chinese until Chinese uh, trade relations were normalized with the United States. At the time, it became legal to do business in the United States in, in China for any American firm to even touch Chinese soil. Some companies had already been operating in China at great profit, building infrastructure 
for trade in China. One of those companies was a private engineering company, the largest engineering company in the world, called Bechtel Engineering. The head of Bechtel was a member of the Trilateral Commission. His name was Casper Weinberger. And while it was still illegal to do business in China, Bechtel Engineering had completed uh, something like 18 major infrastructure constructions in China, paving the way for Chinese trade to capture companies and businesses from the United States, mostly trilateral-related companies, I might add. And so these are the people that opened up China. They open it up like a can of beans with a, you know, with a campfire can opener. They open up China, <laughs> which is still a repressive totalitarian nation to this very day. They open up China, begin to move companies over to China to get cheap labor, and in some cases, slave labor. They decimated the American labor market, stripped entire industries away from America. They pounded us to death with imports, tipping our balance of trade upside down, where we have consistently run a trade deficit for 40 years. Now, this is at the hands of, again, just to point out, this is at the hands of members of the Trilateral Commission. The current Trans-Pacific Partnership is being negotiated by Michael Froman. He's the current USTR. Already, the TPP has been called the most scurrilous, self-centered trade agreement that's ever been dreamt of in the history of the world. Wow. And it's on the president's desk right now. Um, it still has to be ratified, if you will, by the Senate. But because Obama was able to get so-called fast-track legislation passed in Congress, he has the right to submit that to Congress and demand a ninety-day a, a vote within ninety days. And um, within that 90 days, there's a certain amount of public discourse that can take place, but no amendments can be added to it as a straight up and down vote just on that treaty. And most importantly, instead of requiring the normal constitutionally required two-thirds vote for passage, the vote requirement on fast track is 50%. Hmm. So all he needs is a simple majority to pass this trade package that covers 40% of the GD of the of the gross domestic product of the world and a 50 51% vote in the senate is going to seal the deal for the globalists to completely reform global trade in their favor it will screw america to the wall in the process right behind us is coming the trans pacific trade and investment partnership ttip that will cut, and that's but on the in the Atlantic Basin. That will cover all the Europe and all the Atlantic co- countries that, that touch the Atlantic Ocean. TTIP will cover the other sixty percent of global domestic, you know, gross domestic product in the world. So between the two of these, they're covering one hundred percent of trade in the world. Wow! Negotiated by a member of the Trilateral Commission. Okay. Uh, something's wrong with this picture. <laughs> yeah, it seems Are, like it only benefits the members of the of the uh, Trilateral Commission, right? 
Well, it does. And, you know, skip backwards, rewind to NAFTA, 1992. NAFTA, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA was a treaty that was architected by, Mad or by um, you know, her name's going to skip me around. I'll bring it back to you in just a minute what her name was. But um, uh, it's Carla Hills, excuse me, Carla A. Hills. She was the USTR under George W. Bush. She architected NAFTA single-handedly. She's been widely credited as being the primary architect of NAFTA, looking backwards. So Carla Hills, member of the Trilateral Commission, executes NAFTA. Uh, George W. Bush signed it just in a ceremony, kind of a signing ceremony. Bill Clinton picked it up, signed it for good, railroaded it through the Senate, and it got passed into law. Well, during the run-up to that election, when, Jim, when uh, Bill Clinton got elected, he was running against Ross Perot from Texas. Ross Perot was the guy that he, he mercilessly attacked the NAFTA treaty. He said, don't do it. This is a disaster. And uh, he ran as an independent, of course, kind of like George Bush did, in, or not George Bush, but kind of like Donald Trump is today. You know, he's, he's, he said a lot of stuff mm. that people liked. One of the things he said, which was prophetic, I wouldn't say biblically prophetic, but it was prophetic if you understand what I'm saying. He said, if you pass NAFTA, you will hear that giant sucking sound going south. <laughs> and everybody laughed at him. You nut, come on, Perot, you know, go back to Texas. And you know what? Ever since they passed NAFTA, you know what we've heard? That giant sucking sound going <laughs> south. <laughs> right. That's all we've heard. And I was reminded of that just last week when General Motors said they're going to move some plant. I don't know where it is in America, but I saw it. They're going to move a plant to Mexico. And the American workers of the plant, of the people that are going to lose their jobs, are protesting and they're up in arms over this. Yeah, it was the carrier who does heating and air conditioning. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I don't yes. get you. These are so, the people who have done it to us, guys. You know, the, the evidence is clear looking back historically. There mm -hmm. hasn't been any other group. You can't blame the Council on Foreign Relations. You can't blame the Bilderbergers. You can't blame anybody else but these people because they're the ones that have been in the driver's seat. Right. right. So the Trilateral Commission is is not a political organization at all. I mean, it doesn't no. belong to any country or any political, you know, power or anything. Okay. It's just made up of, you know, basically Globals. leaders, CEOs, you know, business people, some politicians maybe, uh, whose only goal is to, I mean, it's, it seems to just be all greed-based. I mean, it's just to create an economic system that they can benefit from. I mean, well, it, 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 it doesn't it even that, seem that, like a, a something that would work towards, you know, this sort of fantastical, uh, fictional utopia that a lot of global, globalists talk about. Well, I know. I, I would probably want to tr uh, help you ri raise your horizon uh, in other words, just get a little bit more horizon up. Do it. Elevation so that you can see the bigger picture. Um, it's, not, it's not just about greed, although certainly greed is the, 
you know, basic human avarice that is all sorts of trouble, right? The Bible says the love of money is the root of, of, of lots of kind, different, different kinds of evil. Right. And it really is. So there, certainly that's there. I'm not diminishing that in any way by what I'm going to say here. But when, when the Trilateral Commission started, it's my view today, looking backwards, knowing what we know about what they've done, that they intended to implement what Brzezinski called the technotronic era, which essentially was technocracy from the 1930s. Technocracy was the only economic system that was ever specified and architected and written down in history to replace free enterprise and capitalism. It's the only one. There's never been another economic system in the history of the world that was like technocracy. And the reason the scientists and engineers of that day did it, because they thought during the Great Depression that capitalism was certainly going to die completely. Hmm. And it was up to them, the scientists and engineers, to step up to the plate and take over. The technocrats in in 1933 called for FDR to declare himself dictator and simply dismiss Congress. <laughs> they didn't say how they're going to do that, but you know, I don't know how Congress would have felt about that. Yeah. But they would they hated politicians. They they felt that they were superior in intellect and superior in knowledge and that they knew how to, you know, run the social mechanism of society. And this system was not adopted back then. You know, we can thank God for that. But we got, we got FDR instead. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, oh, you, you should be glad you got FDR, I'm telling you, because if you got technocracy, we'd, we'd all be marching to a different drumbeat right now. <laughs> but, but here's what technocracy said in 1938. Here's how it defined itself. This was from the magazine, The Technocrat. This is a direct quote from their magazine. Uh, quote, it says, technocracy is the science of social engineering. The scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. Can you see the economic flavor here? Mm. Yeah. To produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. That was their, that was what it was all about. And how were they going to do that? Through social engineering. And how are they going to do social engineering? Through science and the so-called scientific method. In other words, they were going to make an engineering project out of all of society. Let's all say moo. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, they figured, hey, society's just like a herd of cattle in a feedlot, man. Let's, Let's engineer them. So they called it the science of social engineering. The, uh, this does get a little bit off the rails, but this is the this is the historical record, and is is absolutely one hundred percent documented. These people were calling for utopia back then, and it's a good thing the Rockefellers didn't give money, or they they probably would have been successful. They didn't get any money from anybody. They were at Columbia University for a while. They had everything going for themselves in nineteen thirty two. Until one of the promoters of technocracy was discovered to be a fraud. He didn't even have an engineering degree. Columbia got mad and kicked him out. They drop kicked him right out of Columbia University. And that was kind of the end of the big time for them, if you, 
<laughs> if you can imagine, they did go on to start an organization called Technocracy Inc. Right. that had oh, some 500,000 members in the West, especially um, through the 30s and 40s. It was, it was a big deal. Uh, but it never gained any big popularity, never had institutional support until Brzezinski got a hold of it in 1970. This is just incidental that technocracy in 1932 was housed at Columbia University. You remember where I said uh, Brzezinski was when he wrote his book, Between Two Ages? Same place, Columbia University. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't know if I want to make that connection too tight there, but it seems to me that um, there may well have been some linkage there that he found it in the archives, or maybe they were still talking about it in the halls of the engineering department. Uh, you know, who knows? Right. Um, <clears throat> but this is what they picked up in, in, in the Trilateral Commission. Now, the reason I'm saying this is, you say, well, how how does it get beyond just the United States? Well, you remember in 1992, the first uh, Earth Summit was held in Rio de Janeiro. And you remember that Agenda 21, the document, Agenda 21, that's the agenda for the 21st century. That was created in 1992 at that meeting. And even though, you know, people say... Ah, there's no such thing as Agenda 21. That's just, you know, it's crazy talk. It's, you know, can't possibly be something like that. Well, it was. I've got the book on my bookshelf. People can go to Amazon, type in Agenda 21, buy the dumb book. Cost you 40 bucks, buy it. It's got the it's got the UN insignia right on the front cover. <laughs> you know, just okay, it's a real book, okay? Well, you, if you go backwards just a little bit, find out, well, how did, you know, the United Nations doesn't just have these meetings and all of a sudden they cough up a, you know, 500-page document. There's lots of planning and stuff that goes in before it. You know, by the time they have their big meetings, it's just kind of a, a formality that everybody's going to sign the document, you know, like, get on board, guys. This is the greatest thing. We've we talked to everybody, and this is what we came up with. If you go back a few years... To 1987, that's only five years before 1992. Um, one of the big commissions that the United Nations has started was completed in 1987. It ran from 1983 to 1987. It was called the Bruntland Commission because it was chaired by uh, Gro Harlem Bruntland. And she was um, the minister, uh, she was the prime minister of, um, I wanna, I'm going to say Denmark. I don't think it's Denmark, but one of, the, one of the Scandinavian countries. And previously to that, she was the minister of environment. But she was picked to head this Brundtland Commission, which according to the United Nations' own historian, was the person who basically invented Agenda 21. In other words, that's where it was all started. They, the commission actually produced a book. And by the way, you can buy that book on Amazon as well. Um, it's called Our Common Future. That's not 40 bucks, but you could buy the book, and I, I suggest people do it. You could listen to what they said. Don't listen to what I said. Our Common Future. And so the United Nations said that that book was singularly the, the, the single uh, singular uh, inspiration 
nuts and bolts, etc., of the lead up to the 1992 meeting at Rio de Janeiro that produced Agenda 21. Just so happens that Gro Harlem Brundtland was a member of the Trilateral Commission from Europe. Isn't that a coincidence that the entire Agenda 21 program, which is where sustainable development got its name, by the way, hmm. that it was all architected by a member of the Trilateral Commission? You see, this, this, this is just so overwhelmingly obvious to me at this point. Right. What these people have done, they fed the entire technocratic mantra to the United Nations under the auspices of sustainable development and Agenda 21. And now, some 40 years or whatever, 30 years later, 25, 30 years later, the United Nations has run amok with sustainable development, especially, which is an economic term. Sustainable development is not a political term. <laughs> it's, it's economic. Right. Development means business. And they also call it a synonym within the United Nations is green economy. You'll see that word thrown around at the UN. Green economy and sustainable development are completely, absolutely synonymous uh, to the United Nations. So we could take it as a synonym as well. So their green economy is nothing more than warmed over technocracy that they got picked up from a member of the Trilateral Commission who fed it to them and they adopted it hook, line, and sinker. Now they're pushing it all over the world. And the end game for them is to implement sustainable development everywhere, not just in one country, but in the whole, the whole planet. And so the head of climate change last year, in February of last year, that's Christiana Figueres, by the way. She's a very powerful woman now at the United Nations right. for all of her work in climate, you know, climate change stuff, right. namely global warming. This is what she said at this conference, a press conference over in Europe. It never hit the press here, you can, you can bet. But I, the video was on YouTube, and I transcribed it because she spoke in English, which is good. She said, and I quote, This is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. Right. Yeah, I remember you, that. You don't have to read between the lines, do you? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and then she says, and just a little bit further on, she said, and this is a quote too, this is probably the most difficult task we've ever given ourselves, which is to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. See, she gets it. Yeah. She gets it. Wow. She gets the plan. This is what the Trilateral Commission set out to do in 1973 to create their new international economic order. Now, yeah, I don't have to break that down for you. The, the word new means new. The word um, international <laughs> means international, right? <laughs> Economic order means, you know, like I say, okay, that means economic development model, right? It's it's a match. It's 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 like, you know, it's like when you when you work the the Rubik's cube, uh, you know, puzzle, and you and you turn that final that that you make that final turn, and all of a sudden you realize you just solved the puzzle. 
I don't think too many people know what that feels like. Well, you're right. Maybe a simpler puzzle. Although I will say, I am a pretty good Rubik's Cube solver. So now, okay, so we've all heard of Agenda 21, and now Agenda 2030, I guess, is kind of the new version, I guess, or something like that. And But how does, I mean, what does that include? We, we know that they're trying to make a whole new economic system. Uh, those who vaguely know what Agenda 21 is, I mean, some of the more shocking things have to do with what relocation of citizens and things like that. And uh, so what exactly is in store for, I guess, everybody around the world if they get their way with this? Well, the 2030 agenda document that was produced last October uh, at the general uh, plenary session of the United Nations. That's that's the one that the Pope came to talk to. Everybody remembers the Pope coming to the United States, you know. Uh, he spoke to the, he spoke to Congress, and then he had a big mass in Philadelphia, and he met with the president, I think, too. But the reason he came to the States was to speak at the United Nations at this meeting they were having. And this is where the 2030 agenda was hatched. It didn't add one single thing to Agenda 21. And the official document actually says that everything Agenda 21 said was still in effect. In other words, it's, it's, uh, this builds on it, they said. They didn't replace anything. They didn't change any doctrines whatsoever. But the problem that they had was, back in the year 2000, the United Nations had a big meeting And they created what they called the Millennium Development Goals. Those were the goals on how they would actually achieve Agenda 21. They created, I forget how many goals there were, maybe there's 12 goals or something like that. But they call them the... I think it's 17. Well, there were 17 of the the 2030 Agenda. Oh, okay. I don't think there was that many back in the year 2000. Okay. But in in any case... When they started in 2000, they said it's only going to be good for 15 years. So 2000 to 2015, that's 15 years, right? So here's the dilemma. The MDGs were expiring at the end of 2015. They had a pressing need to create another set of goals that would be good for the next 15 years. I don't know what the word, what, what the number 15 has for them, but in both cases, they're 15-year you know, goals. So the 2030 Agenda has 17 goals. They call them the Sustainable Development Goals now, not the MDGs. Now it's the SDGs. Don't you love the alphabet soup? <laughs> uh, the SDGs took effect on January one. 2016, and they will expire in the year 2030, at the end of the year 2030. So that's why they call this whole thing right now the 2030 Agenda. Uh, It's really just Agenda 21, but now they want to complete it by the year 2030. Not not by the end of the 21st century, but by the year 2030. You see, this is an acceleration, if anything. Right. Yeah, and, and I've been tracking that whole thing since September, especially when the Pope was here. And, you know, there was a lot of buzz about what's going to happen, you know, when the Pope is here. And that I think that was the sort of catalyst was, you know, the Pope was there to usher in this whole, you know, 2030 thing. And um, 
it's interesting because, you know, most people thought, oh, nothing major happened, but it seems like this is, you know, it just keeps going under the radar with most people. And uh, it, one of the things that was interesting was the recent um, Davos 2016 conference. Uh, one of the meetings that, that I, you know, made a video on and reported on was the uh, Life in 2030, Humankind and the Machine. And the discussion was, you know, they're looking at the fourth industrial revolution and uh you know what's what 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 entails this next industrial revolution uh the fourth wave and you know they had these panelists with um you know talking about artificial intelligence genome editing big data they had one guy that's you know was a space mining guy he's like oh we're gonna go out into space and I mean, it, you know, it just sounds like, and, and I called the video that I made uh, Tomorrowland 2030 because, you know, it's it's kind of the whole technocratic dream, right, of sort of this elite group getting kind of their wish of, uh, so it's kind of, you know, and, and I, I want to ask you what, if any, do you see any ties to, because I certainly do see the the bigger picture in terms of the horizon, like you were talking about earlier, it has to do with kind of a, a a civilization of its own a breakaway civilization is what richard brand or richard uh dolan called he's a ufologist but you know this idea that they're going to have uh, access to this technology and they're going to essentially become gods and it goes back to genesis 3 and the serpent and the garden and everything else but uh, is that something you see as well is that the implementation of this technology you know, not just the control of it and not just the control of the economic system, but as part of the reward or the, the, the reaping of that will be immortality or, or life extension and, uh, you know, all kinds of transhumanist fulfillments and things like that. Is that something that you're seeing as part of the, the, I guess, the dream of something like what Brzezinski saw back in the seventies? You know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, psychological fluff floating about in not only technocracy, but in transhumanism as well. And they really are Siamese twins in a couple of different ways um, because they're both based on scientism, which is a, you know, it's just kind of a science-based uh, religion where, you know, science becomes the God, if you will. Right. And if science says, you know, fill in the blank, then you have to do that. Uh, doesn't matter how you validate what science says, but you know that they the scientists figure that out and they come down and tell us what we're supposed to do with that. Well, for all the promises that technocracy has made, like the twenty thirty agenda, for instance, it starts out and it's all those seventeen goals. Oh man, they're going to end poverty. They're going to end <laughs> it sounds hunger. Really good. They're going to have jo jobs with dignity for everyone. You know. And all these Pollyannish, uh, you know, promises, they, they've never, nobody in the history of the world has ever accomplished these. How do they expect to do it now? Well, they don't. That's not, that's not, that's not the point. That's the carrot that keeps getting people involved to go mm. along with it, right? When you get down into the fine print of the 2030 agenda, for instance, you find out that the only thing you have to give up in order to get all the things they promise you have to give up the entire means of production and consumption. That's all. <laughs> just small little fine print. You know, it's just going to require your soul. That's, you know. 
<laughs> and, you know, people don't read down that far. They don't read 20 pages into the document. They only read the 17 goals at the top. Well, that's the same thing that transhumanism has done, too. They have made promises based more on science fiction than on science, on, on how they're going to achieve immortality and how they're going to achieve omniscience. And they think because of some scientific breakthrough, they can say, see, we told you so, aha, you know. But the fact of the matter is, they're not one step closer to achieving immortality than they were when they began. And this is something, and I'm sure Carl, if you talk to Carl Tyker about this, he'll tell you this, this, this quest for immortality goes back almost to the beginning of mankind. Yeah. They've been, you know, that's been the holy grail, is to escape the hand of God and somehow, you know, achieve immortality and become like God. Gee, it says that somewhere else in the Bible, doesn't it? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, so, you know, man is bent on this quest, you know, to, and, and up, up until about 30 years ago, it was really nothing more than just a metaphysical uh, statement. Mm. Just a, it was a just kind of a religious belief system of its own, and there was no evidence it would ever happen. They just talked about it. You know, it was a, a, when I say metaphysical, it means there was nothing physical about it. But since science started to advance, it kind of morphed over from being purely metaphysical into being also now hardcore science. So they've kind of they kind of wheedled their way into the scientific community, if you will. <laughs> Yeah. And so now when a scientist comes up with some new uh, new technology, like there was something here, yeah, there was something, a headline I put up on technocracy.news, um, uh, I think today or yesterday, the headline goes, with a few skin cells, scientists can make many thinking version of your brain. In other words, many brains. Oh, yay. <laughs> Call it, you know. <laughs> wow, okay. that's incredible. Well, yeah, I know. So whatever that means to these scientists, you know, the, the transhuman crowd is going nuts. <laughs> wow, they could grow a brain in a, te- you know, a test tube now. Well, that you can't really extrapolate it that far, but science and pseudoscience are very difficult to separate today. Right, yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah. And so what a, what a legitimate scientist might do, uh, you know, might be taken by a pseudoscientist as something totally different. Sure. And I think personally, I think the transhuman crowd is internally is very disappointed with the actual results that science has given them that they were promised maybe around 1990. Hmm. You know, I don't think they've seen much progress at all, if any. Uh, And so I'm not, you know, I'm not hopeful for them that they're going to actually achieve it. And I just hate, I've said this more than once, the Bible's pretty clear. This is not one you can spiritualize. It says it's appointed for man once to die, and then comes judgment. Right. So, you know, I mean, the battle's not with me and what I say. If they, if there is no God, they don't have to worry about it. But if there is a God, and what He said is true, they're going to have problems. <laughs> Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to get to immortality. You know, right. It's just going to happen. Yeah. And and there's there. You know, the one of the things that I looked at with the whole one of the seventeen goals, uh, sixteen point nine, 
uh, was, you know, by 2030, provide legal identity for all, including birth registration. And you kind of dig into that kind of rabbit trail, if you want to call it that, and you start getting into biometrics, and they kind of want to track everybody from birth and right. DNA identification. And, and Well, I, I think you bring up a, a good conversation, Gans, which is, uh, I mean, what exactly are those 17 points or, or whatever? I mean, we've, we've heard a lot about Agenda 21, and I'm sure a lot of people out there have done their research, but what exactly does that mean well, can, for the common can, person? Yeah, I mean, I could read, read them off for you. I mean, just the titles of them. I mean, you got, yeah. you got no poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy. Decent work and economic growth, industry, innovation, and infrastructure, reduced inequalities, sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption and production, climate action, life below water, life on land, peace, justice, and strong institutions and partnerships for the goals. And like the biggest question for me is like, okay, under what condition? Like what, what's the trade-off here? Like what, what's just what a do list, we have to give up? It's to just get a this? list of a lot of nice things. Yeah, it's, it's like, pleasant. It's, there's only one thing that they have to give up, and that's the means of, of production and consumption. Right. You know, the communism, socialism, Marxism have been after, you know, that, that's all, that, that's what the Bolshevik Revolution was about. You know, when socialism came, Marxism came into that country, communism, they, want, they took over the means, of, uh, the means of production and consumption, and they tried to have a managed economy. Adolf Hitler did the same thing. Mao Zedong did the same thing. And other countries have tried to take over, you know, the means of production and consumption. They've all failed. They tried and failed. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. Well, technocracy is different in that it wants to be run by scientists and engineers, not by politicians. Right. This, is all, this is altogether different. In fact, if I were to read you the first five requirements that were written down in 1934 on technocracy... You'd think I, you'd think I might have written these myself yesterday, you know, just to kind of document, you know, kind of say, well, this is the way it is. No, this, this is what they wrote. This is very short. Number one, this is a direct quote, quote, register on a continuous 24 hour per day basis, the total net conversion of energy. Number two, quote, by means of the registration of energy converted and consumed, make possible a balanced load. Those two requirements completely explain smart grid today. Yep. And why we have the smart meters, which, which the, the head of uh, James Clapper, the head of the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, just said to Congress recently that, oh, yeah, we'll probably, you know, we're, we're probably going to use the, the smart home, in, you know, Internet of Things to spy on people. Okay, well, the <laughs> smart grid makes that possible. Right. Now, here's number three, quote, provide a continuous inventory of all production and consumption. That's economic. Number three. Number four, quote, provide a specific registration of the type, kind, et cetera, of all goods and services where produced and where used. Number five, quote, provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual plus a record and description of the individual, close mm -hmm. quote. That's what they said in 1934 had to happen for technocracy to take place. Yeah, it sounds pretty modern. <laughs> this is pretty modern. I mean, it, it, it sounds like they're taking it right out of the old playbook, doesn't it? Yeah, and it sounds a lot like um, uh, what, what the Bible describes as the mark of the beast <laughs> by well, himself, you know. I, I'll tell you what I think has been missed. Now, I've, you know, I've been 
I've been a Christian studying Bible prophecy for a long time now. And I, what people have missed, I believe, everybody's looking for the Antichrist. Well, you know, the Bible right. says we should be looking for Jesus, not for the Antichrist. But that aside, you know, everybody's been thinking, oh, man, there's going to be this dictator, man. He's going to be terrible. He's going to do this and that. And, you know, we're looking for a dictator. And I saw this mentality in the 70s and 80s, and I, I went along with it. That was me. You know, I, I, I said, oh, maybe it's going to be Henry Kissinger, you know, or something. <laughs> I, you know, we, we all had our favorites, right? But listen, when scanners came into Safeway, when the first IBM scanners were introduced to the grocery store, Christians freaked out. We're not going near that place because we're going to get the mark of the beast on our hand as we walk and you know walk by that counter or something where they're scanning our food. It's like, gosh, you know, people are just all in a big upset about this. Right. It seems every but new listen, piece of technology. I know we we look back that. and chuckle at you know how immature that was, but that was where we were back then, right? Here's what people have missed: the devil is a systems guy. He's a systems engineer. He's not a dictator in the sense of off with their head, like, you know, King Louis, the whatever, you know. He's a systems engineer. And what is he building here? He's building a system with engineers, I might add, engineers and scientists. He's using those people with the so-called scientific method to produce, to create this system of things that is going to control people. And it's not that there's a dictator saying, you gons are going to do this tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. You know, there's not some guy calling you up and saying, if you don't do that, we're going to send the Gestapo out for you. The system is going to corral you and force you into a position where you have to do those things. Like, go down to the bank. Uh, I don't care how much money you got in the bank. Uh, go down to the bank and try and draw out $500 out of the ugly teller machine. You won't get it. They won't give you more than two or $300 a day. Out of the ugly teller machine, you know the mechanical teller. Right, right. You can go down to go down to the next branch after you've gotten three hundred out of one and try and get it there. Say no, sorry, you've already withdrawn at another branch. <laughs> you can't get it here either. Right, and you can go in and pound, you know, pound on that machine all you want. You're not going to get one stink a nickel out of it. <laughs> it's just you're, you're just flat out of luck. So the system is being created today to. To, uh, through rules and regulations and through algorithms and artificial intelligence is coming online as well, as you know. Mm-hmm. The system of things is what the devil is creating today that I believe will be the system that we see in the book of Revelation that will control people. And I, and I just remind people again that the whole issue of the mark of the beast, forget interpreting it, uh, but the whole issue of that is being able to buy and sell. Right. What does that mean, buy and sell? Well, that means production and consumption. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whole the whole proposal in the book of Revelation is this you know, the system of things, the world system, the cosmos, is a system that is ultimately controlled by the Antichrist, true. But you see, the Antichrist uh, is not omniscient, he's not omnipresent either. Right. So if he's ruling from one spot on the globe, he can't be everywhere um, you know, all at the same time to make sure everybody does what they're supposed to do. But if the system is in place to where he can kind of pull a few strings at the top to set the policies, then everybody in the rest of the world is going to have to obey or they'll just get 
X'd out of the system. You know, just poof, you're out. You know, you're not going to play ball with us? Fine. You know, you can't buy or sell anymore. Right. Yeah, and it, and it really seems to echo the image of the beast as well that, you know, I've tracked and many people have tracked and there's been speculations about what the image is for, you know, decades, but it seems like with, you know, AI, especially the description of artificial intelligence, uh, you, you know, you just read, it was allowed to give breath to the image so that the image might speak. And, you know, if you don't worship it, you, you will be slain. Uh, it sounds pretty, you know, straightforward in terms of in our day, like, Oh, it sounds kind of like an artificial, uh, intelligent entity or, or whatever it may be. Uh, mm-hmm. That can force upon you know the the major population uh, what it wants to do, and, and in that way, it's it's it really is an artificial uh, omniscience, you know, for the antichrist. Exactly, that's exactly right. If I was going to write a science fiction book, uh, this is pure speculation, you understand. But if I was to write a science fiction book, I would make sure to have humanoid robots that were able to autonomously you know, roam the a community or, you know, roam a county or whatever that would know when they need to go back to base to get charged up again for the next day or the next shift or whatever that had the ability to communicate with a home office uh, where they could get their instructions for the day and their new, any new updates and algorithms, you know, when they're at, like when their apps get updated. Right. And they would receive all that wirelessly and stuff and their instructions for today. So, if if they had a list, for instance, of people from yesterday that dropped out of the system, <laughs> that said, I'm not having anything to do with the system anymore, I'm out of here, and they got dropped out of the system, that the bioidentical information could be, be fed to those, those ar- that army of robots in the community, go find so-and-so and eliminate him. You know? Well, Just yeah. keep, keep your eye open for so-and-so, and when you see him, blast him. <laughs> yeah and there's there's plenty of articles and and stuff coming out saying that autonomous robots roaming the count the countryside is not really that far off i know it's like probably five to ten years at this point that there'll yeah. be something like that yeah. now you know we should stress i'm not against engineers i'm not against scientists all scientists and engineers are not into technocracy that's a fact Many scientists and engineers are good people just like you and me. They're not out to control the world. They're not out to run everything. You know, they don't treat us like a herd of cattle. <laughs> There's plenty of people like that that are good people. And in the same line, technology itself is not evil. Right. No more than the dollar in your pocket is evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And if technology falls into the wrong hands, it can be extremely destructive to mankind. Sure. If it's used by, you know, by good men, if you will, then, you know, in a sense, it's redeemed. Good men will use it in a responsible way to benefit men. Mm -hmm. So it's not the technology that we're just dissing technology because it's evil technology. It's not that at all. Any one of these technologies can be used for good. Even robots can be used for good. But it's the other people that we worry about. The evil people in the world get a hold of technology like this, like the Hitlers of the world. They use it for altogether different things. And that's, you know, that's a scary thing. Do we, do we know that robots will be armed at some point in time, um, you know, with lethal, even with lethal weapons? Yes, we do, because organizations like DARPA, 
at, attached to the Pentagon. That's a defense advanced uh, research. VA, uh, research and development yeah. some agency. DARPA is notoriously black hat operation, and they're doing stuff, you know, trying to develop the super soldier, trying to develop all these advanced robots and stuff. It's like, yeah, they're not doing that to have, you know, sell Girl Scout cookies for pizza. Like, <laughs> you know, they're doing it. They say, they tell you right up, they're, they're, they're trying to create uh, things for the military that will keep them military, militarily advanced over anybody else in the world. So you know they're doing this. They're going to take these robots. If they ever get a good one, they're going to take them and somehow figure out how to arm him. And then they're going to put artificial intelligence in him and use them for military purposes. Right. Yeah, I don't like that. That's not. <laughs> I do not care for that. <laughs> I don't care for that. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting as well when you look at Revelation thirteen there, and and it talks, you know, with the, the passage about the mark of the beast. Uh, this struck me when I was looking at all the twenty thirty uh, the goals and stuff. But you know, the mention of both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. You know, the people that will be marked. It, it just struck me that. You know, one of the things or several of the things that are part of the goals is, you know, equality. Uh, you know, I guess you can people can generalize it as sort of a socialist kind of perspective or whatever. But, you know, reduced inequalities, uh, gender equality, uh, education for all. It's sort of a across the board, you know, bring up the, the low man and, you know, even the person who's uh, wealthy can be a part of this. And it's a big you know, one big happy family kind of perspective, but uh, that that sort of struck me as well that, you know, it's sort of uh, without even probably knowing or thinking like, oh, this kind of sounds a little bit like Revelation 13 verse 16 or whatever. They're kind of playing into that mold, you know, and and so it, it is a very interesting time that we're living in. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I uh, did recently was checked out this movie called Visioneer, uh, the story of Peter Diamandis, I think is how you pronounce it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He's, a, you know, he's, a, I guess, a futurist or whatever. He's co-founder of Singularity University with Ray Kurzweil and, and all this. And I'm just curious if you, you know, I'm just throwing it out there, if you know of any connections there with the Trilateral Commission. I mean, I wouldn't be yeah. surprised <laughs> if there's some connection there because he's got the whole X Prize uh, thing going with... Uh, you know, $30 million prizes for the first person to whatever artificial intelligence. He had the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the space thing back in 1996. And uh, so it, it, do, have you heard or have seen anything come across your table that in particular with Peter Diamandis or uh, Ray Kurzweil, these gentlemen who uh, are pretty into the whole transhumanist thing as well, that has a, a tie directly into uh, what appears to be the Trilateral Commission or any other, you know, major institution? Well, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, Ray Kurzweil, as you know, and probably your listeners know too, is is one of the uh, absolute leaders of the pack of the transhuman movement. Right. And uh, Ray is a genius engineer for sure. Um, he's um, dead set on resurrecting his father uh, to bring him back to life and perhaps put his memory somehow into um, a cyborg or a robot or maybe a computer or something like that. And you know, Ray has visions of grandeur, I think. Um, he's very intelligent on one hand, but then he seems to have some crazy, you know, crazy thoughts on the other hand. However, 
Uh, he's the head of Google right now, engineering at Google, right. as you know. That's he right. didn't need, and listen, he did not need a job when he took that position. Yeah. The only reason he took the position was to get control of all the engineering stuff <laughs> that, <laughs> that Google has at its disposal, because that might just put him one step closer, maybe, in his mind, at least, to the singularity, which is the merging of you know science and artificial intelligence, uh, and uh, the you know immortality as well. But listen, even Ray Kurzweil is not a member of the Trilateral Commission. But, hey, look, catch this, his boss, <laughs> Eric Schmidt, Ooh, Eric is Schmidt. a member of the Trilateral Commission. <laughs> wow, okay, so, okay, all right, because I've, I've reported on Eric Schmidt as well, and he's, you know, he's said some interesting things. He, he yeah, did, Didn't he, he, uh, he put together the, um, the, the new program alphabet right <laughs> which is kind right. of an ironic sort of you right. talk about That's all right. these alphabet agencies and he comes up with yeah. alphabet which i'm still not a hundred percent sure what it's supposed to be um maybe you can shed some light on that <laughs> well it's alphabet is simply 26 companies the names of which all start with a different letter that's all it is oh, okay they've got <laughs> and I, they may not have sounds all ominous <laughs> It doesn't, though, I know. It's like, yeah, it's just weird. I don't know if they have 26 companies actually right now, honestly, but that's the idea of Alphabet. And if you go and go go Google that, you'll find it, right? Alphabet, Google, whatever, you'll see the list of companies. They, You know, like, you know, A is for Apple, B is for Boy, C is for Charlie, you know, whatever. Right. And, and they got all these different companies that they're you know, naming different things like that. So, right. And I remember, I think it was about a year ago when Eric Schmidt talked about, he, he had mentioned the end of the internet and he didn't mean that in the literal sense of the end, you know, uh, uh, but more of a change. And I think he was also, uh, uh, he, he, he also talked about the, the surveillance. So well, maybe not him, but it was, it was something, Oh, maybe it was just my connection there. <laughs> I'm trying mm -hmm. to connect the dots. But he met the Pope. So, he definitely met the Pope, uh, what, a couple months ago or something? He uh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, had that whole meeting there. So that's really interesting. I I knew there was somebody. <laughs> there was someone in there that had something to do with the Trilateral Commission. But yeah. that's very fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a small world, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no surprises, you know, I these suppose. Pe listen, these people back in the 70s, I, we used to debate members of the Trilateral Commission in public. Back in, you know, I don't know, by 1978, we had a, we'd already had several debates with members of the commission. And this, they actually told us to our face that, well, you know, it, it just, you know, good people tend to float to the top. And that's, that's the kind of people we pick for the Trilateral Commission membership. And the fact that all these people end up in government positions, you know, in important positions like controlling all the media and all, all the other, you know, whatever, right. all the agriculture. I mean, that's just, that's just coincidence. It's just, you know, because <laughs> other people know that, that, you know, they go for the good people, too. <laughs> they, they find good people in the Trilateral Commission and there's really no connection. <laughs> Right, just, you know, but what egotism, what paternalistic garbage they gave us, you know, like they're just all oh, shucks, you know, we're just a group of good old boys and we just happen to be the smartest people on the planet. <laughs> and that's why everybody else wants us. That's why we're in demand, right? you know, to fill all these positions. Right. 
get off it. Now, now let me, let me ask you this because, uh, this is a, it's related, um, Mm -hmm. and you have a whole tab on it on your website, but it's the topic of climate change. And it's been an interesting sort of thing to look at for the last couple of years. I believe the, um, I think it was a French president, uh, I guess five or 600 days ago said something about, Oh, the climate is, uh, you know, there's going to be major problems if we don't do something about it. Um, and then, you know, that, that whole, I think the day he announced it, the, the I think he had some specific number. I don't have the, the notes, my notes in front of me, but it was 500 something days. And that landed on September 25th, which was the day that, you know, Pope Francis, made the announcement, uh, you know, about the 2030 thing. Um, but there was a lot of buzz, you know, oh, what's going to happen? Something major is going to happen. Uh, what, what's the tie in here with the whole climate change thing? Well, <clears throat> here's my take on it. Um, climate change is not the end game. Sustainable development is, um, if you can picture this kind of like a good cop, bad cop scenario, hmm. The solution that's being offered, regardless of the problem, is sustainable development. Climate change is the the fear-mongering element that causes people to want to stampede into sustainable development, which is the only solution being offered. They're not being offered capitalism or free enterprise, I'll tell you that. They're being offered sustainable development. So... Global warming has been a mantra that brings significant fear to people's minds. I mean, Al Gore said the seas are going to rise and we're all going to die. Right. Um, but he still has his beach house down whatever in Florida. <laughs> you know, I said I don't get that. But um, you know the the whole climate change thing, in my estimation, is the biggest scam that has ever been pulled off on a global scale. Wow. And when I say scam, I mean, even though there's a number of scientists that have said global warming is true, there are many, many more who say it's not. And there's total dispute on it. But, however, it's taken on a religious fervor. And when Al Gore said last year that climate deniers deserve to be punished, he moved from simply having a belief to having a religion because that's how the inquisition got started. Mm. You don't believe like me, I'm going to punish you. Well, how are you going to punish me? Well, back then they put thumb screws on you and they drew and quartered you and uh, (laughs) they tortured you with different types of things. And you probably would die if you didn't confess. See, it's the same kind of mentality coming now. If you don't believe what I believe, I'm going to punish you, and I'm, in some way, I'm going to punish you. And this has taken on a religious proposition now, but it's still the same thing. It's, it's, it's a fear-mongering tool to panic people into accepting sustainable development, which is the only solution that they're being offered. Now, what is sustainable development? When you, when you say that, what exactly does that look like? Well, <clears throat> sustainable development... It's, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of comp- you can make it complex if you want to, but it's an economic term that in the end of things takes over the entire means of production and consumption. They want to tell people, businessmen, what they can make 
what they're allowed to make, how many resources are they need that they will be able to use in making whatever it is they're allowed to make. They'll have to get permission from these people to make anything. And secondly, uh, in the area of consumption, they will tell you and I how much we're allowed to consume. And if we don't consume what they say we're supposed to consume, they will punish us. They will, in other words, they'll take away things from us. They'll take away privileges or they'll take away rewards or just our capacity to do those things. And this is the bottom line for sustainable development. They want to curtail the use of resources and allocate those resources to people in the way that they see that they should be allocated. This is a scientific dictatorship. Mm. You can't you can't slice it any other way. And and oh, by the way, the greatest book on scientific dictatorship ever written was by Aldous Huxley, right? Brave yeah, New World. Brave New World. Yeah. Right. That that set the standard as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that was the book that talked about scientific dictatorship. Well, he wrote that book in 19 he's a Brit, but he wrote that book in 1932. Mm, interesting. Which was the same year that technocracy was at Columbia University. Now, yeah, put two and two together. Where did he get his inspiration? From technocracy. This was a big deal at Columbia in 1932 because they were really kind of the talk of the town and intellectual communities around the world. And the president of Columbia, um, his name was Butler, uh, Nicholas Murray Butler, he traveled all over Europe frequently. I think he spent more time in Europe than he did in New York City. Uh, he's a name dropper. He liked to hobnob with the big mucky mucks around the world. And no doubt, there's absolutely no doubt that the inspiration for the book Brave New World came from technocracy. And the key to that is if people go back and read that book, they'll find all kinds of interesting things in it in light of what we said here. And that is a scientific dictatorship intends to control people's lives from beginning to end, from not, not, just, not just from the beginning of your birth, but from the very time of your conception, even to engineer your conception in such a way that your, your outcome, your, 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 your brain power, your physical power, and so on, will be determined in the test tube before you're even born physically. And... Uh, you know, your life will terminate in the same way. When the system decides that you should be terminated, you will be. And this is a monstrous proposition. When, when you realize it wasn't just fiction. It was fiction, but it was based on these people's dreams and aspirations right. to use science to completely take over mankind. Right. Now, do you think, you know, as sort of conspiracy-minded folks that we are, uh, and I, I understand that what you're looking at is not necessarily, you know, a conspiracy in the theory sense, you're sort of looking at the plain writing on the wall, so to speak, and I I think that's important, you know, obviously to uh, to understand or to, to show people that it's real, it's not just, you know, it's not just crazy conspiracy theorists or whatever, but, you know, do you think the influence of people in the trilateral commission trickles down to, you know, we hear a lot about uh, false flag events and stuff like that, where, for example, the Paris attacks uh, conveniently, you know, what a month before the conference uh, that was held there, the climate change conference there. Um, 
do you think they they perpetrate events to help the overall agenda you know create the climate that will want sustainable development well you know that's really that's really a hard call i i personally don't go there because um you know it's not exactly like there's a doctor no somewhere pulling levers on every event that happens in right, the world right um <clears throat> could it be possible i suppose it could but you know somebody's going to have to show me the beef <laughs> you know give me some evidence that it's actually true sure the fact is in an unstable world in my in my view stuff happens um and you know bad stuff happens and you know not not all of it is a result of somebody making it happen as much as it is just this the sinfulness and the evilness of mankind and uh, as we know there's a lot of evil people running around in the world right now with machetes and scimitars and you know who knows what else uh ak-47s and stuff that want to kill everybody else so stuff happens on the other hand um, you know, you say, well, you could look at nine eleven. You could look at the, you know, the Oklahoma bombing, and on down the line, and try and try and fit that in. I don't even bother with that because there's no proof and there's no evidence to support it. So I just don't, I don't mess with it. But on the other hand, Europe is being invaded by the Islamic hordes, mm-hmm. and it's obvious the Europeans know that they've been schnookered. They know that their entire civilization is on the is on up for grabs right now, right. and they're desperate. They're absolutely desperate in Europe right now because of this wave of immigration from the south, the Muslim immigration, bringing with it a lot of terrorists. What's interesting is <clears throat> that the policy for open borders and immigration has been brought to Europe by a man by the name of Peter Sutherland. He was um, of originally of Irish. Uh, origin, and he's been the, uh, I think he was the one of the one of the managing directors of Goldman Sachs for some years, uh, so he's a banker. He was also a politician, and now he's the, he's the envoy in charge of immigration policy at the United Nations, okay? Peter Sutherland is a very powerful man in Europe. He also just happens to be the chairman of the European group of the Trilateral Commission, this is not this is not insignificant now just follow with me <laughs> when he was appointed in 2006 he went around to all the nations in Europe and said you have to open up your borders for immigration open your borders open your borders open your borders and remember that our border is open to the south of us as well he said that open your borders he said he's the guy who single-handedly really went out and talked these nations in Europe into writing regulations and stuff that would open their border to immigration. There was not much immigration back in 2006, but all of a sudden it started up a couple of years ago and now it's absolutely overwhelmed them. And in the meantime, Peter Sutherland has been out there telling these people, don't, don't shut it down, keep it going, keep, leave it open, leave it open. And here's what he says about the reason for this. He said, the, and he said this, this is almost a direct quote, He said, the only way we can implement sustainable development in Europe is by achieving a multicultural society. That's what Mm. he said. Direct quote. Insanity, yes, but I don't don't forget that. Don't get stuck on that. You know, he's crazy, okay? This is a guy who a Trilateral Commission member who has brought Trilateral Commission policy to the table in Europe 
to tell the European countries to open their borders to southern to southern migration for the sake of creating a multicultural society in Europe. And he connects it directly to sustainable development. So this is only where we're going to, we can't have sustainable development unless it's through having a multicultural society. And when Europe almost blew apart last fall, just to, re- just to kind of solidify the point, when Europe almost blew apart last fall, the United Nations, and everybody's complaining about it, the right-wing movement over there was going nuts, the neo-Nazis were going nuts, and, you know, trying to push back on this stuff. The United Nations had the brass, not Sutherland directly, but I think it was the head of the United Nations actually did this. He came out and chastised the European nations that were talking about curtailing their immigration. They, they actually went out and psychologically beat up on him and said, don't you dare reverse your policies. Leave them alone. You know, if more immigration comes, c'est la vie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so this is a, this is a, a, this is a direct forceful policy of the United Nations, and in particular of the Trilateral Commission through the auspices of Peter Sutherland. Now, that's not a conspiracy, and that's provable, because he's on YouTube, even, having said these things. Right. It's crazy. You say it's yeah. absolutely insanity. And that's one reason, by the way, our southern border is open. It's never been closed. They refuse to close it. Now, I'm excuse my hesitation. I mean, this is just blowing my mind. Um, so... What, like I don't get like what do they hope to achieve from that? I mean, it, it seems like the only thing to achieve from that, at least from what we can see in recent events, is a <laughs> some sort of collapse of some kind. I know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's starting to get it, huh? Oh, he's now that you bring it up, <laughs> you're, we're going back to my original uh, field of endeavor, which is economics, um, right? I mean, is that is that a planned thing so they can step well, in and save the world? Well, the, or what does they that have like? they have the um. Gosh, I'm trying to remember what it was called. It, it was part of the this the 2030 sustainable development thing. Uh, something about neighborhoods or something cities. Yeah, I, I can't remember what it was called. It's a strong cities. Strong network. cities strong network. Cities That's network. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it seems like that would be something um you know to implement uh, to help this this alleged problem. Because, you know, uh, if, if U.N. troops are all over the place, uh, you know, to help sort of keep the order, so to speak, uh, it would seem convenient. But go ahead. If, go ahead and well, <laughs> that's a, That certainly is a, is a component that, uh, you know, it's something we consider. The Strong Cities Network is a big pile of hooey, but uh, our <laughs> attorney general sucked us into it. And, you know, so that's a whole other story. Whoops, hang on a second. I got to cut off my video. I don't know if you can hear that audio. No, we can't. Yeah, I hate, we it. Can't hear I hate it when you open a web page. Oh yeah, and you get the ads and, and stuff. It just starts playing stuff. Yeah, we, oh, we, we, just drives me nuts. <laughs> but that just happened to me. I was trying to open an article uh, that talked about uh, from 2006. It talked about Jeremy Rifkin, who's a futurist and an economist and an advisor to the global elite, a technocrat for sure, technocrat extraordinaire. 
And he said in 2006 that the only way tech, the only way this radical new economic system is to come into being is through the collapse of capitalism. Ah. Mm. I know. And so, you know, <clears throat> they've talked about this. Many people have talked about this. They believe that back in 1932, that capitalism was dead. That was the whole point. That, that right. was the point. Right. That capitalism would die under its own weight. Well, here we are almost 100 years later, and it hasn't died yet, but, you know, it looks like it's on the ropes again. <clears throat> and, um, you know, there's a huge moral hazard that these people have set up for themselves. You know, if, if, if the economy didn't collapse all by itself, if they are hoping that it will, w would they give it a little extra kick? <laughs> you know, like, would, would, they, would they dare to push Humpty Dumpty off the wall? Kick it while it's down type situation. I know. So, you know, I can't answer that affirmatively, yes or no, but I do know that the world is on the brink of economic collapse right now from a number of different angles. Right. It might get saved for another round. It's possible. <clears throat> but this this could be the big kahuna, so to speak, that is that we're facing right now. And right. um you know, Rifkin had it right in 2006, in my estimation, that, that capitalism has to be out of the way before the solution of technocracy will ever be accepted. Hmm. And uh, we're not to that point yet. And, you know, you wonder why people, economists even, wonder why is the, why is the world in such an economic mess? You know, they can't forecast anymore. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but whenever you see... Um, some economic statistic come out more often than not you'll see it surprised economists you know whatever <laughs> you know, they were looking for plus three it was negative three they were looking for negative two it was plus five you know whatever they their their economic models don't work anymore the reason they don't work is because you've got two economic systems duking it out in the in the in the world right now, you have capitalism on one hand, and you have technocracy on the other, which is sustainable development, this green economy nonsense. And they're spending trillions of dollars trying to create this this new economic system for sustainable development. Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, just think think back of all the money that Obama gave to alternative energy investments back in two thousand eight. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Think of how many of those companies are still alive today. <laughs> there's, there's hardly any of them. The biggest one that went out of business was Solyndra in California. Right. It was. Oh my gosh! It was. It was such a disaster. Where does that money go? Well, it just goes poof. You know, it just when a company goes bankrupt, they spent all the money. They they went bankrupt on top of it, so the entire investment was lost. And that's just money down a hole. Well, how much money can a nation throw down the hole before they run out of money? <laughs> you know? I mean, let's say every day that you, you that you said, "I'm going to go out. And I'm going to I'm going to dig a hole in my backyard, and I'm going to throw a hundred dollar bill every day at nine o'clock into that hole." Uh, sooner or later, you'd run out of hundred dollar bills, right? And you go, gee, I have no more $100 bills, and I have no means of making another 100 bucks. I guess I'm just out of the game. <laughs> I guess I'm bankrupt. Now, you know? what, what do you, and I guess more of a practical question, but what do you recommend we do as, you know, as 
if the economy just completely collapses, you know, that there's a lot of uh, folks out there that, um, you know, have their bug out bags and stuff like that. But what, what kinds of uh, advice do you have uh, in, if, you know, in the imminent sort of collapse of the economy? Yeah, the, the first thing is don't do anything until you really understand the whole problem. You know, don't run off half-baked, you know, oh, my gosh, you got to go do this and the other until you get the whole problem. One way you can get the whole picture is to get a copy of Technocracy Rising. You can get it on my website, technocracy.news, or you can get it on Amazon.com. But it's Technocracy Rising, and the subtitle is The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. Get it and read it and absorb it before you run off and do anything. You need to understand how the world is being transformed, number one so that you know how to prepare for it. And then you also need to know who's doing it to you. Who is the real enemy of our nation and of our society? And, uh, you know, if there's ever any hope of stopping this enemy, unless you recognize him, you won't. Because even Sun Tzu recognized this, the famous military strategist uh, from China back in, what was it, 500, 400, you know, A.D., he understood that if you don't recognize the enemy, you will never win the war. So, you know, I, I don't, I say don't rely on a podcast or, or broadcast like this, where even though it's long and extended, don't think you know enough just by listening to us here. Get the book and read it and spend some time digging into it. And then I think maybe you'll figure out some things that you might be able to do that would help you. All right. That's a, I was going to say that was a, a, one of the greatest setups for a pitch ever. And I didn't <laughs> I know, even intend right? it to <laughs> put it right over the plate for you. Pretty Thank good. you. Hit it well, right out of the park. well, this has been, I mean, uh, educational for me. I don't know about anybody else out there, but as well as a little bit sobering, you know, as a lot of these types of things can be. I know I'll definitely be jumping on there to grab the book so I can learn a little bit more about it. Um, but you you write articles and do all sorts of stuff, right? You're you're putting out a lot of content. Well, I actually I am, and uh, I've consolidated all of my uh, efforts into one website now, which is Technocracy News. I've um, forwarded the domains from August Review and August Forecast to come over here into technocracy.news. And that's my, that's where my book is available. I'm writing the articles I write appear there. And I'm also curating other news stories that are related to technocracy that will give people current examples of, you know, what, what do you mean technocracy? Well, these are some of the things that you need to know. And you, you can read the current stories from the news around the world, and you'll get it pretty quick. No, this isn't, you know, this isn't just some pipe dream. Nope, it's a, it's a, it's a clear and present danger, as they say. Right. All right, well, there you go, folks. Go to technocracy.news and get all the information and books that you could possibly dream of on what you're, uh, you're going to need to know to get ready for what's coming. Patrick Wood, this has been... Such a great conversation. I want to thank you for coming on the show today slash tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to have to keep uh, getting you on here to give us updates as the the future comes barreling towards us. 
Indeed it does. No, Nobody stops time, do they? You know, time just keeps on a going. There you go. <laughs> you can All like right. it or hate it, but it won't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much again, and we'll talk to you next time. My pleasure. Thank you. There you go, guys. Hope you liked that interview. I sure did. And like I said in the interview, you know, I always heard and read and kind of knew about the Trilateral Commission, but it was nice to get an official explanation. Yeah. It's uh, one of those things you should have known already, Basil. I don't understand I know. why you... Uh... Well, it's like I knew... I don't know, man. I, I knew, but there's so many things to know. It's true. This. The details. Yeah, I just didn't really have a full... Because, you, you know, you'll read and research and listen and watch and it'll be like trilateral commission trilateral commission trilateral commission and you're like oh yeah that, those guys are bad uh but to get like a you know a nice comprehensive explanation of who they are why it's bad who's involved why they're bad and uh kind of what keeps the whole thing running you know that's something you don't really get all the time yeah and you know what's interesting is uh since the conversation with patrick wood he posted something about how Trump, one of the Trump's uh, people that are, you know, under his wing is uh, Trilateral Commission. Trilateral. Trilateral. Yeah. So there you have it. Even Trump might be part of the system. Well, he's got to be part of some system. You don't get, you don't get a, a fantastic toupee like that without having some connections. <laughs> it's true. I, yeah. I, I was hoping we never have to talk about Trump on this show, but evidently that's not going to happen. Yeah, it's surpri- I'm surprised we have it. I mean, it's probably because we haven't put out an episode in three months. But <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I don't know. I don't know if we are ever going to go into a full thing of Donald Trump, although it'd be, it'd be fascinating because there's a lot of talk about how he's not part of the system and that's why he's so awesome. But that's, that can't be true. It can't be fully true, although it's possible that he certainly isn't to some degree. He might not be in the same good old boys club in in that sense. You know, what I mean, that's what Mr. Gingrich said. It, well, I, I think there's there's something to it, although there's other, I think, areas to where he's being compromised. Slowly. So more on Donald Trump next time. <laughs> on Can- <laughs> One of these days we'll talk about it. Well, it doesn't matter. It, the, a few years from now, the people might be listening to this and saying, oh, yeah, remember that time when, uh, when yeah, things were normal, it. when things were more normal, when yeah. Donald Trump was running for president. You yeah. Know? And they'll be like, why didn't Basil and Gons warn us? <laughs> What have we done? The idiocracy has happened. <laughs> it is true. Or who knows? We'll see. Or they, they'll stop aging. The Simpsons universe comes to life and yeah. everybody stops aging. Maybe the Simpsons universe is real and we're the TV show. I don't even know what that what? was. <laughs> You're just making up your own theme song. My own theme. It was, was, was going to be um, the... Twilight Zone or something else. It was like the Simpsons and the Twilight Zone got mixed up. Yeah, it's, it's and a then hybrid. Just, and then just stopped it because was, it was confused about <laughs> itself. <laughs> it was a Nephilim theme song. Yeah. All right. Anyways, guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, make sure to go to 
Face Like the Sun on YouTube. Gons is putting out some great videos. I just watched your video on the robot who, uh, Sophia, the robot who wants to destroy humanity. Yeah, Good old I was Sophia. Late on that story, but yeah. That's okay. You know, it's, it's better late than never. And face like the sun videos are always way more on top of it than your run of the mill other video. (laughs) (laughs) And while you're at it, go to your iTunes or your YouTube or your Stitcher and check out the Joy Spiracy Theory, everybody. It's my new podcast. Um, talking to all of your favorite fringe Christian uh, prophetic conspiracy uh, Bible researching people, you know, talking a little bit more laid back, talking about lives, personal lives and uh, joy and how to stay joyful and stay, stay alive as a regular person with all this darkness coming in around us. Uh, just a couple of hints. There's a lot of cats. Uh, there's a lot of dogs. There's a lot of talking about... I just talked to Derek Gilbert, the beloved, beloved Derek Gilbert. And uh, if you want to listen to that, check out The Joy Spiracy Theory. Yep. And the reason why I haven't been on there is because Basil told me that I need to have more joy in my life before I'm eligible <laughs> to be a guest on the show. Sorry, buddy. You're going to bum everybody out. <laughs> Your, your joy meter is still too low. We'll get you on there one of these days when you're cool enough. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you liked it. Again, the USB drive is available on canarycryradio.com slash support. And there's uh, less than 30 left. So go get yours now. But make sure to tune in tomorrow Yay. to Canary Cry Radio because we'll have the third in the Canary Cry Radio uh, unofficial traditional three people <laughs> unofficial traditional first time inaugural before the uh, so-called resurrection day but until then think outside the cage <laughs>